Warning. The exercise of imagination is dangerous to those who profit from the way things are because it has the power to show that the way things are is not permanent, not universal, not necessary. In the perfect society, everyone has a soft serve ice cream machine in their house. And bidets are the default. In the perfect society, pens would never do that annoying thing where you gotta like grab one and like scribble it on the edge of the paper because the ink isn't quite at the tip of the pen yet and gravity's doing its thing. They would all be designed like those really nice fancy pens that never do that. Once we have Utopia, it'll take more effort to be unhealthy than it takes to be healthy. In the perfect society, Nobody is ever going to be lonely again. We're all going to have friends. We're all going to have people close to us to listen. In the perfect utopia, everybody is going to be equally sexually attracted to everyone else. It's all going to be fair. You're going to have just as many people who want to have sex with you as who want to have sex with Brad Pitt. It's all going to be the same. Perfect. Equal. The language we use to communicate with each other will be designed in such a way that we're always going to be softly letting one another down through a set of realistic expectations and assumptions of language. We'll never be faced with the harsh reality of true things that are hard to say. The fluidity of language will be tied to the truth of language. In the perfect utopia, everything is going to be totally okay to joke about. No words are going to be off limits because everyone knows that hatred and xenophobia of all kinds is a thing of the past and any reference to them are easily shaken off, laughed at, taken lightly because it is so distant from the reality of the situation. It's finally okay to joke about. In our utopian future... All of the struggles of the downtrodden, the oppressed, and the optimistic throughout history will be rounded up and sublated into one glorious new movement that redeems the promise of all previous movements in one culminating gesture as we transition from one society into a superior mode of society. In our utopian future, everyone is going to be allowed to masturbate or have sex wherever they want in public in private anywhere it's totally fine everyone's cool with it it's just like if you were standing on the corner not masturbating it's the same as if you're masturbating you are I'm just saying, those who make half a revolution only dig their own graves. Hello and welcome to the Seriously Wrong Podcast. My name is Sean No Place Villiers. And my name is Aaron The Happy Place Moritz. As long-term listeners of the show know, listening to Sean leads you nowhere. Listening to me leads you to perfect, unending, static happiness. This episode of the Seriously Wrong Podcast is brought to you by a perfect state of unending happiness. Your mom just died? You're going to be happy about it. 
Girlfriend just broke up with you? <laughs> Tears of joy. They ran out of your favorite ice cream down at the Dairy Queen? <laughs> Smile on your face. Forgotten what it's even like to ever experience variants of emotion in any kind and completely lost a reference point for what happiness even means in comparison to other emotions? You're going to be happy about it. Complete and total happiness forever. Proud sponsor of the Seriously Wrong Podcast. In episode 10, um, we made a sacred promise to our audience. Now, it's very rare we'll make a promise to our audience, and it's very rare that we'll make a claim that isn't rooted in empirical material evidence that's uncontroversial. Um, so in episode 10, we really stepped out of our zone when we claimed our show through the act of making 1,000 episodes of Seriously Wrong, would create world peace and be directly responsible. 10,000 years. 10,000 years of world peace. Of world peace. So not just around us, but around the world, including people who have never heard our show and have never listened to us. And so, yeah, now that we've reached episode 100, and that means we're 10% of the way there, yeah. I think it's time to take stock whether that's been happening, whether our plans have been coming to fulfillment. And I think they have. Without a shadow of a doubt, compared to the time when we first started this show to now, the world is 10% more peaceful and it is because of us. So sit back, uh, <laughs> relax, enjoy this spectacular world peace, utopia uh, extravaganza that we have coming up for you. Jeffrey, did you take out the garbage? No, Dad. It's not even full yet. I asked you to take out the garbage like 45 minutes ago. What have you been doing? Uh, I'm just writing a story. Well, that is that is great. I encourage that. I love your creativity, son. But I asked you to take out the garbage. Can you please do that? I get tired of telling you this stuff. Dad, you shouldn't take out the garbage until it's full. It's basic ecological principles. So tomorrow is garbage day and it's going to stink up the whole place if we don't do it. Like just, there's a little bit of a command and control system of the house, son. Your over-intellectualized objections to not taking out the garbage is just a diversion tactic from the fact that you're disobeying orders. Okay, I don't want to though. I don't want to take out the garbage. Well, if you don't want to take out the garbage, then how come you don't come to the Utopian Cadre meetings with me and your mother where we organize and agitate for a post-scarcity society? I don't get kids. On one hand, I oh, mean... I hate taking out garbage. On the other hand, oh, I hate going to Utopian Cadre meetings to agitate for a post-scarcity society. Make up your mind. I went once. It was boring. I don't even... What are you guys doing there? You just sit around and talk you're not what is agitating mean you're being creative upstairs and you're writing well the ultimate form of creativity son are you, are you paying attention you're looking at me the ultimate form of creativity is reforming society and changing society and the ultimate form of that is reforming society in such a way that everyone's creativity and self-management is maximized and actualized so in a sense this little story you're writing there is a lot like what uh, your mother and I do when we uh, when we agitate for direct democracy, full automation, and uh, a decrease in the length of the work week. So the garbage will take itself out, and we can focus entirely our efforts on writing stories and making society a better place. It's interesting that the word utopia like comes from. Greek origin and the words that it comes from literally mean no place. 
it was chosen specifically to mean like not real it's nowhere it's unattainable imagination land it's an imaginative exercise the term was coined by sir thomas more for his book utopia which is like the origin of the term from my understanding it's it's a pun that means both no place but also the good place Thomas More's book has been interpreted in a couple different ways as either social criticism of the ruling order or as parody of the idea of utopian thinking in the first place. So it can either be seen as an attack on established powers or it can be seen as an attack on challenging established powers. And it would seem that it was intentionally designed to be able to be read in more than one way and built specifically around this pun of utopia, either being about the good place or being about the place that can exist yeah that kind of like ambiguity and dissonance being baked right into the origin of it is interesting because i feel like it continues on into pretty much every permutation of utopia you can find but the 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 interpretation of more that i read that made the most sense to me was that he he was involved with the catholic church somehow he was a active Catholic believer and stuff. And some of the specific aspects of his utopia were very much against Catholic doctrine. And so the interpretation that I read that made sense to me that has apparently become more popular in recent years, according to the one thing I read, was that what he was trying to do was show without without God in the mix with the Catholic God doing things proper, good Catholic way, that this is where reason and logic and man trying to fend for themselves, basically, without God's moral commandment, this is where they would end up. This this is the best they could do. And so there's like, there's good aspects to it, but there's also these really negative aspects to it, some of which to me don't seem that neat. Like the main thing they point to about that was like legal euthanasia was part of the utopia and that goes against Catholic doctrine. It's one of the reasons why people were pretty sure that he wasn't just saying this is the best thing ever because he was such a devout Catholic and his ideal world probably wouldn't contain that. I wanted to ascribe this idea to Thomas More that he's that ambiguity that's baked both into like the name, the, the the ambiguity that's baked into the term utopia, using art for social criticism while giving yourself at the same time some plausible deniability. John Stewart kind of, I'm only a comedian. I'm not responsible for what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. It's like Thomas More was doing that and saying like, maybe he secretly believes that legal euthanasia is rational or that right, would right. That was his horcrux against the Catholic Church that he never told anyone about or something. The way that he was able to get out his idea about, for example, euthanasia is to frame it in the context of an obviously satirical story. What you really want to say, you make a storybook universe, you get the insane guy to say it, and then you put it out in society. And then if the church ever comes at your door being like, hey, these are some counter-revolutionary shits that you're writing, and we don't like you very much, you'd be like, whoa, whoa, you you didn't get the satire like look he's an idiot and it comes from the lack of intellectual freedom of the time that he was in where if he the baked in ambiguity of the term utopia is a result of the conditions at the time openly dreaming about alternative societies needed to be couched within the plausible deniability of satire and fiction i like that i like that theory you want to hear some about some things about his utopia i made a little list mm-hmm 
Uh, so no private property, uh, no locks on doors or houses. Some things that were like very specific, they had like a very specific population that needed to be maintained. So if they got over it, people were removed to, it was an island, they were removed to colonies on the mainland and recalled back if if the population dropped. Some very specific things, like there's 6,000 households, 10 to 16 adults each. Full employment, like I said, no private property. So everyone does work. Everyone learns one trade from either weaving, carpentry, metalsmith, or masonry. But also everyone participates in agriculture for two-year stretches at a time on some sort of rotating basis. Interesting kind of regimentation. But uh, according to him, they only had to work six-hour workdays because... Everyone was helping out, and it's this big communal thing, so they're doing less work than we have to in our modern society, <laughs> this imagination utopia. Um, the only people who got to get out of doing one of the trades were kids picked in their youth for their ability to learn, who became scholars and priests and uh, administrators, and they got better food, I believe. Uh, <laughs> there was... No privacy, as in like no places for private meetings to be held. The idea being that if everyone knows what everyone else is doing all the time, people are more apt to behave well. So it's kind of like, yeah, this distrusting vision of the the, the only way to have everyone behave well is to have everyone under watch all the time. Not by necessarily just the government, but by everyone else who was there. They had religious pluralism. There was a whole bunch of different religions on the island. Uh, and they're all allowed, including atheism, but atheism was the only one that was openly despised, <laughs> <laughs> particularly mentioned. <laughs> um, so that's all the good things. There were some bad things too, like every household had two slaves. The slaves were either criminals, it was a potential punishment for breaking a law was to become a slave, or people captured from other countries. Premarital sex was punished by... Lifelong celibacy. Ooh. <laughs> Other things. So it seemed like they had some pretty strict controls. I thought that was interesting how they, that was like a very a very Catholic prescription, even though he, he let euthanasia go, but not that premarital sex. <laughs> Don't do that. Yeah, those are, those are the only two, like, for sure negatives I wrote down. But even some of the quasi-positive things... I was talking about a totalitarian about. element to it. There's yeah, a... yeah, which is a common theme in utopias is the potential of totalitarianism lurking underneath. I feel like I've read more than one story about like, you know, the seemingly idyllic society and what's what's actually hiding underneath. But it's a common theme because I think we have like a distrust of the idea that perfection could be achieved and probably a warranted distrust today's episode of the seriously wrong podcast is brought to you by the political struggle for liberatory technology yeah technology is pretty great and it can help automate our communities and free up labor time and free us from toil however the incentive structures of capitalism say that the only automation that will happen are the types of automation that are profitable to major corporations the solution is a political struggle for liberatory technology outside of the realm of profitability the political struggle for liberatory technology proud sponsor of the seriously wrong podcast what does utopia look like? What is utopia? What are we shooting for? 
when we make this very, very sacred promise to our audience that we would never, ever lie about, we're going to create 10,000 years of world peace. What specifically are we talking about? The, the quickest way that I can summarize my feelings on this issue is, is total human liberation. Uh, I'm going to throw just a few more words on top of it, words that we've used before that are popular on the on the net. Fully automated luxury, blank. I don't really care what, what ideology you tag on the end there, but <laughs> fully automated luxury communism, fully automated luxury communalism, liberalism. So I really love the idea of post-scarcity, of work becoming 100% voluntary the impulse of needing to contribute in order to live has been nullified by the abundance of material and mental resources and and and, and capital that has been built up in the course of human history we've we've created enough machines and infrastructure that we can now take all the pressure off and let you flourish to be who you want to be without these artificial constraints. That's my utopia that I think is, is possible. Everyone individually has the capacity to whatever degree they would like to exercise their full creativity, their full artistic vision, and their full moral and rational vision for the world and, and bring it into reality as best that they can. That we've all been turned into political artists who are engaged in experimental and fluctuating and, and joyous experimentation towards higher levels of self-organization and compassion. I think that's an achievable utopia. Yeah. And part of it for me is even like, I really like all these uh, noble th aspects you're putting onto it. But part of it for me is just the realization of uh, an almost hedonistic ideal not that I think most people would choose to live their life moving from one, you know, base pleasure to the next, just inhaling drugs and sex <laughs> until their body collapses and they no longer can do anything anymore. But but the key word of what I'm trying to get to right here is the the luxury aspect. <laughs> that pleasure is good because I think that may sound like a very simple, obvious, basic statement that almost everyone would agree with, but there's a lot of hidden, subtle, not so subtle, direct ideology out there that pleasure is actually bad and that pleasure corrupts humans, corrupts the human soul, makes us, you know, uh, the idea of the work ethic that you find your fulfillment through a lack of pleasure through being forced to do what you would rather not, uh, that through asceticism, you achieve liberation. Whereas I think, I think that's even po potentially true, but I think it has to be a chosen asceticism or that, that it's more ideal if it's chosen asceticism, because I don't believe that we can achieve like perfect happiness through the fulfillment of our material desires. I don't think having luxury is going to make everyone happy all the time. But I think the best way to help people realize that they're not going to find fulfillment through luxury is to provide everyone with luxury. And then it's just going to be obvious that, oh, hey, there's still this inner human basic discontent. How do I, how do I deal with that? How do I feel better? How do, how do I make myself feel like my life means something? 
then all that stuff you just talked about comes into play. I'm going to become an artist. I'm going to participate in political life. I'm going to try to invent something. I'm going to try to uh, write new stories, open up new realms of possibility. I'm going to create music. I'm going to create new math theorems. I'm going to, I'm going to follow my interests as, as far as I can follow them and fulfill my potential to the furthest amount that I can fulfill it. And the assertion I'm making there is that that is much more possible in a world where you don't have to struggle for the basics of having to live. And I, I think some people would disagree with that. They would think it's more possible in a world where you do need to struggle. I think that comes from a sort of false equivocation of looking at the world as it is now and noticing that certain people who are born with a lot tend to stagnate. And I think that that has more to do with their relative position in the world to all these other people who don't have enough. And they, they see that they have more and they expect that that's going to make them happy because they have more than everyone else. And it doesn't make them happy and they're confused about it. But if we lived in a world where everyone had fully automated luxury lives, then that would be common sense. It already is common sense to some extent, but it, it would be much more deeply ingrained and understood by everyone. If one is living in a very nice society where they have the capacity to make art, study science, fish in the morning and criticize in the afternoon without becoming a fisherman or a critic, etc. Uh, within this utopian world, if you're going to live in that situation and then what you choose to do at the end of the day is a cartoonish type of inaction, just laying around and doing drugs all the time and jerking off, it's not a sign that you're a bad person. It makes me think not fuck you, but like, oh, wh why? Like... Don't you want to paint? Yeah, like what what pain are you escaping from? Yeah, don't you want to go hang out with your friends and help dig a ditch for the government? They're all doing it right now. It's fun. Everyone's we, laughing. We love digging ditches. Yeah, we love the government. Hey, Christopher. How's it going, man? I'm doing very well. How are you, Christopher? Oh, just chilling. Just chilling, you know, doing very well. I'm from the Central Planning Board's Purpose and Meaning Committee. By the way, I've brought you a care package. So inside there you find there's some caramel chocolates and um, some some new socks. Oh, sweet. So uh, it's come to our attention that you have been taking in uh, more than you've been putting out. You, you, you haven't contributed to any community initiatives in any recent record. From all accounts, it, it would seem that you are um, a drug user, an over-frequent masturbator, and... Mm. How do you guys know that? It's something that people bring up frequently when asked about you. It's not any secret. You don't mind if I smoke, right? Yeah, you know... I got. I had this bowl all packed up, and... This is... That's, I mean, it's a free society. I mean, that's... <coughs> My name's Thomas Bradley, and I work at the Utopian Department of Labor. My job is to take slimy little drug-using masturbating weasels and turn them into productive members of society with a little bit of love, respect, massage, and getting to know them, listening to them. Our Utopian society has a 98% 
productivity rate. Using our program, we anticipate a decrease in masturbating and drug use from 2% to 1% over a three-year period. That's why I need you to open up your smartphone voting app right now and vote yes on Prop 1922924. This will give us the legal powers we need to stop the rising levels of lifestyle, masturbation, and drug use in our society. Thank you and good night. Because you are the most challenging client in our society, I've been assigned to you. You masturbate all day and you do drugs. That reminds me, actually. You you mentioned me doing drugs. I've always wanted to like take like 30 hits of acid at once, you know? Maybe get some paint and lay the paper down on the ground and kind of roll around in the paint with my paint with my hands and my feet i think i could make something some really psychedelic work there you know like you were talking about work i want to be the conduit all right christopher it was a pleasure to meet you i will be back tomorrow to touch base with you again i want you to think about what i said about you working and um Is there anything that you need me to bring you, like apples, bread, milk, toilet paper, anything like that? Well, I mean, if you're coming by tomorrow and we're going to try to get to work, maybe you could be my trip buddy or my, like, sitter. I'll take 30 hits of acid and and make this painting. If we try your way tomorrow, would you be willing to try my way after that? Oh, man, you really haven't ever done acid. You know what? You got a deal, buddy. You got a deal because I can guarantee you that this is going to work. The single greatest piece of art that this society has ever seen. All right. Well, I'll see you tomorrow. You have a, a great night, Christopher. You take care of yourself and don't do too many drugs. I know all about my limits. Don't you worry. I'm, I'm a responsible user. What will become of this free-spirited, non-productive member of society? Will he make anything of himself, or will he just be lazy, lazy garbage forever? Will his government-appointed life coach be able to get through to him? Tune in a little later in the show to find out. In the extreme example where they're like, no, I just want to live out my days um, doing a cocktail of drugs having free shelter from the government and free food or not even from the government having free shelter and food for my community and mm-hmm. i just want to laze around and just be high and masturbate and stuff in the event that that person these occasional people slip through the system where they don't want to participate in this great shared project of uh, building a perfect society with all of their friends and comrades what harm are they going to cause i mean like they're not causing any harm and them like we have enough food, we have enough shelter. Yeah, we, yeah, only, we have a place for them to live. The only potential harm is this this freeloader idea that that they're an undue burden on the rest of society that they cannot be sustained. But explicitly within the context of fully automated luxury, it can be sustained. Mm-hmm, yeah, we could sustain sixty percent of people deciding on this. Yeah, and nowhere near sixty percent of people would decide <laughs> to do drugs and masturbate all day. Like lots of people would probably decide to do some drugs sometimes and masturbate sometimes. Or Hey, go through a period of a couple months or 2016 was the year that I (laughs) laid around, did drugs and masturbated. You know, it's, it's over now and I'm,
I kind of wish that I used that time differently, but I'm coming to terms with the fact that that's the reality and it made me the person I am in a way. It helped you learn that that wasn't where your ultimate happiness lay. So it was a beneficial step in the, in the process of becoming. Mm, yeah. And I've, and I'm using this experience as a teaching experience for third parties to have them avoid that. Yeah. You're going to write a book about your year uh, spent masturbating <laughs> doing drugs. <laughs> That can hopefully, a, a short book, hopefully, that can help people <laughs> learn from the That's like a five-volume epic <laughs> called My Year Masturbating and Doing Drugs. Uh, the first volume is just a detailed day-by-day -day account of everything you did. Yeah, uh, that might even turn out to be like, in, in this utopia, we've already gotten up to this cognitive horizon that we can barely imagine now in the present. Maybe at that time, in that universe that book that multi-volume epic of what it was what his experience masturbating and doing drugs for an entire year becomes like the ultimate philosophical must read of right. this society right perhaps that experience mixed with the great education that he got growing up or she got growing up so when i think of doing drugs and masturbating i think of men that's probably just internalized <laughs> patriarchy right um yeah i don't know i don't know it makes sense to me but because who says that women can't freeload for a year doing drugs and masturbating? Today's episode of the Seriously Wrong Podcast is brought to you by the present in which we live. The present's really an exciting time, and it's a time that we can't fully understand because we're in it. Sure, sometimes it seems that the present's kind of bad, but hey, just look into the past, and you'll see that the present is actually really awesome compared to everything from the past. But if you ever get a little bit too satisfied and you think the present is actually great, Look to the potential future and see what total bullshit the present is. Today's episode brought to you by the present, which we can only understand through the lens of both the past and the future. So I'm interested in talking about power structures and control uh, in our imagined utopias, because I, th I feel like that's a an essential part of any society is to talk about what kinds of structures are there for, for disseminating and using power and who gets to control what, like, how do we talk about those things? Cause these questions of power and control are at the center of a lot of those ambiguities that make people's utopias look like dystopias to other people and vice versa. So the way that we structure our politics, our, our, our governments, if you want to use that word, is crucial. And uh, yeah, I, I can just say like up front, I've been reading Murray Bookchin for the first time since, well, I, I read a little bit like a way, way back in the day in the zeitgeist days uh, because he wrote a book called post-scarcity anarchism and was talking about a lot of the same kinds of post-scarcity ideas that are that we've just been talking about but his prescriptions for organization and for power were things that i haven't hadn't gotten into until more recently and they really appeal to me uh, on a couple levels and also that they overlap with a lot of ideas that I've had before and even ideas that I've mentioned on the show before. One of the major ones being the idea of bottom-up organization, bottom-up power structures, rather than having the ultimate control over, say, a 
municipality, a city state, a city being with the federal government off somewhere else, the ultimate control for policy setting for your own local neighborhood area is right there with you and the other people who live there and your community assemblies. This is his idea. This is how you set up power. The ultimate power is at the bottom and is accessible to you because one of the biggest criticisms with our current form of democracy is voting doesn't change anything your vote is just this drop in this huge bucket uh they could never possibly make any difference but if you're talking about small neighborhood community assemblies that maybe represent a few thousand people and probably would only have a hundred people or less or a few hundred people participating in them there you have a real voice and a real chance to interact with the process and interact in the process of the creation of the structures that have power over your local area. So I really like that. I really like the bottom-up aspect of it. And I remember the first time I ever brought up bottom-up control, there was a criticism that you leveled against it, which was this idea of, say, rogue instances of communities forming these truly awful uh, racist or murderous or pro-rape or like whatever the the dystopian thing that you could imagine happening if a bunch of awful people all moved to one spot and decided to vote in their terrible ideas. This is an idea I didn't have before reading Bookchin or I didn't fully understand as something like it, but the idea of confederalism and a community of communities and the idea that um, his distinction is that policy is made on the individual level, individual communities, but administration is something that happens at confederal levels and that certain, in this community of communities that exist, certain pressures can be enacted to make sure that these these communities are all working for the benefit of everyone and aren't, you know, evil <laughs> in some in some awful way. Putting all dystopian concerns aside for a second, if functioning at its best purpose, what are we describing? At the base level, there's local assemblies. So like if you live in an apartment building, maybe you'd have an assembly with everyone in your apartment building. If you live on a block of the street, everyone in your street forms a face-to-face -face democratic decision-making mechanism, a direct democracy within the community. Bookshin also specifies specifically that communalists, uh, social ecologists specify uh, specifically that total consensus is um, is something that causes trouble. Because if you have 30 people, 29 people agree on something that one person doesn't agree, in a consensus format, they're able to block it. And then so then it becomes a, a tyranny of a tyranny of who has the most spare time to waste, or who is participating in the least good faith is, uh, is able to get advantage from that. So uh, communalists advocate for you aim for consensus, but eventually you you come to a vote. Yeah, um, a, yeah, simple by majority vote, and also that key to that is that the the views of the minority positions that aren't being adopted at this time are not repressed, are respected, are allowed to continue to be discussed and considered alongside with. Okay, we're doing this now. This is the decision that we've made, but. You know, we'll keep keeping that other thing in mind. 
because pretty much every like new good idea is going to start out as some minority position that only a few people think of at first and isn't going to immediately have wide adoption. And it's not a good system if you had a system where every minority who had a new interesting idea could just impose it on everyone. But through the process of the ecosystem of ideas, you can even if you're not accepting a proposal right now, allow it the space to exist as a potentiality and prove itself worthy of adoption potentially at a later time. And so these these community assemblies uh, pick pick representatives. Those representatives then meet in a higher level of councils for a larger area. And then they send representatives to even larger area. And it goes all the way up to the point where eventually there's a coalition of the representatives of representatives of representatives at the whole at the whole world level what you're you're administering the the collaborated and mediated desires of all these levels of the chain up to the point uh you're enforcing their will to, to the best you can it's not about imposing things on people from the top but it's about mediating merging sublating finding the middle grounds finding what people commonly agree to and then uh, at the higher levels of this system of governance, you're administrating the platform that's built by the people and it's legitimate because it's made through legitimate processes of community involvement. Um, it's not that you're sending a representative who then gets to just fully express whatever ideas they like personally. When when you become a representative of an assembly going up, there is... Um, you can be recalled at any time by the assembly below you. Yeah. And then there's also um, working groups that are not part of assemblies proper and aren't part of councils either. But And similarly, you get power within working groups and send representatives up. Uh, so working groups are people who do things or are following specific ends, following specific projects, or are fixated on something like, for example, maybe your city wants to change the way that roads are laid out in some way, or they're considering some sort of new public transit system. There could be a special set of groups, working groups made for that, that would then have their own structure upwards as well, just for that specific issue. And then in our utopia, there would be a shared digital system of co-education. So an important idea, Bookchin, which he gets from, I believe, ancient Greece, Padia. And it's the idea of the learning and wisdom that comes from the experience of public life. So like when we're talking about in this current system, there's this really stupid idea of by submitting to bosses, by doing hard work, and by not objecting to the horrible situations you're put into, that builds character. There's an alternative version of building character that isn't insane called Padia, which is the idea that by participating in public life, seeing the totality of opinion, participating in dialogue of people with different points of view and stuff, and mediating difference in, in real social realms. So like if you went to an Occupy camp and you ever played the role of a peacekeeper between people with totally different points of view, that would be an example of you gaining Padia, political character, um, and a, a type of wisdom that comes with that experience. What I imagine in our utopia is a digital system that interfaces with these live action councils. So when you have a meeting, when you have an official meeting, the people who are there are recorded and there's also the, uh, a decentralized type of system of, uh, of note taking, recording the meeting. There isn't a single person making minutes, everyone's making minutes and all the minutes are stored in the system. And also you're able to look at the minutes of other communities. Uh, there's in this confederation of, of communities, transparency is key. So we're able to look at what is our neighboring community talking about right now? 
Or you can say, hey, I've got this idea that I want to build a road on this street. Is anyone else in my city working on that, that, that same type of idea? Maybe we can build a working group with them. It's like, imagine if the political side of Facebook was designed to encourage and uh, nourish co-learning and political experience and collaboration rather than being designed to encourage you to click certain articles and spend as much time on Facebook as possible, which are kind of the perverse incentives that the private corporation Facebook is forced into doing in order to maintain their profitability. A digital polis, a digital political realm um, that exists in this utopia uh, would be would be uh, unlike that. It would be interfaced with the physical assemblies, but and it would also allow you to verify the actions of your representatives up the chain of command. So when you send a council member to the next level, you can see their notes on the meeting, see the other people's notes on them and the discussions that are happening and see the decisions that they came to. Because at these levels, there needs to be a degree of decision making as far as if there are differing values and differing priorities between different groups, um, they need to come to some sort of collaboration or agreement. Yeah, if it's something that affects all sides, of it, if it's something that your community can't just make the decision for itself because it doesn't affect anybody else. Like if it's a, if there are stakeholders within multiple communities, then the higher levels have a role to play in, in making those decisions. Whereas if it's a decision that's strictly about your local area that doesn't have broader ranging implications, it's more of a, it's just this local concern. I imagine a digital system using something like mobile phones or the next version of it, the next version of laptops, wearables, whatever it turns out to be, mixed with these physical assemblies in this line of command to ensure a, a kind of total transparency of the political world, uh, the, that public life is indeed public and um, uh, with a very collaborationist, um, mutual education, building of Padia coming out of that. I think even the face-to-face -face assemblies could be online with, what do, you, what do they call those things? Those VR headsets that are really, really good now from what I hear. I've never tried one on, but like people say it basically looks like you're looking around inside a real world and um, be, I, I just kind of had my imagination captured by the potential of having a face-to-face democratic assembly where people don't actually have to travel to any particular spot in order to participate in it. Not saying that you would never have real physical location ones, but for people who say are less able to leave the house or participate for other reasons in a physical face-to-face -face assembly, doing it digitally in this way that is still face-to-face, -face, basically, the experience would be nearly identical. It would be looking in the actual face of the other person you're talking to and seeing their expressions and them seeing yours and it feeling like you're in the same room together, but you're actually not. Yeah. And I, I imagine with the structure of confederations and direct democracy that there's a, there's a great deal of, there's a great deal of diversity contained in this that comes just with the way that people naturally are, um, which is that we're all, you know, spontaneous kind of eccentric individuals yeah, that, that's one of my favorite aspects about this. I know I already said this, but the, 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 the bottom-up aspect, but the, but the reason for that is that I think that having policymaking happening at a federal level 
flattens all of those kinds of difference because you're trying to you're you're trying to create this one size all fits solution like the the government of Canada doesn't say these are the laws of medicine these are th- this is how this law works in medicine hat this is how this law works in Calgary this is how this law works in Burnaby this is how this law works in Vancouver and like trying to account for Different, slight differences in culture, differences in the way cities are set up that might affect how certain transportation systems or, or anything, like the possibilities are literally endless and the variations are literally endless and the facts on the ground rarely lend themselves to a global one-size-all-fits solution. So letting the people who are actually there actually in the neighborhood create their own policy having policy making happen at the lowest possible level is it's really key to my vision of utopia because it's it's one of the biggest issues of statecraft of of centralized power is a loss of resolution trying to look at the image as a whole uh, you can't account for all the details, and so you fudge things. Decentralizing power as as widely as possible without trying to completely eliminate it uh, and allowing for communities, neighborhoods, etc. to have autonomy and power over themselves is how you solve that problem. And that brings up other problems, but as we've been discussing, there are a lot of ways to deal with those and to, to make it so that they're not, not problems anymore. In even the most idealistic utopia is not a description of the end of all problems. It's the description of the end of our current problems and the beginning of a whole the beginning of a whole new crop of complicated problems we can't even imagine. Crop of complicated problems we can't even imagine that comes with a total democratization of society and the liberation of all human beings is a set of problems that I want to someday wrestle with. I hope to get the chance as a species to wrestle with the issues that come out of um, a more democratic society, a more free society, and a more just society. Other basic criteria for our utopia. There, there can't be any more punitive justice, uh, or um, we don't get justice via revenge. We get justice by changing the situation to make bad things not happen again. It's a really like common example in, in post-scarcity thought is like who's going to steal something when you can just get one for free from the distribution center. That's a example of designing society in a way that makes a certain crime uh, incoherent, not just non-existent anymore. And you can do this with a lot of other crimes, Mo- most crimes, in fact. I think the only ones that are really intransigent would be killing, rage, murders, rape, probably more that I'm just not thinking of, but those are the major ones. And and like in the instance that something like a murder, like a rape, uh, something like that does happen, assuring with the best means that we can find that this person who committed this crime is not going to do it again and restraining them if necessary until we can be relatively certain about that. I just wanted to say that because sometimes you talk about a lack of punitive justice and people don't know what you're talking about, but very, very basically what I'm talking about anyway is 
restraint and rehabilitation. And uh, centering the needs of the survivor. So if you've been assaulted, what are your needs in getting back to normal? Or can't can't get your son unkilled, but like what what that is possible? Do you want to see happen? Yeah. Hello and welcome to the artist's voice. I am Mr. Raspy Raspberry. Our guest today is the most profound artist of our generation. He's written the most substantive work on the human condition that we've ever seen. It's become mandatory reading overnight, top seller, read around the world. His name is Christopher Malcolm. His book is called My Year Masturbating and Doing Drugs. It is a pleasure to have you here today. Well, thank you for having me. I gotta say it's a it's a great honor. Where did you get the inspiration for this tome? Not many people know this. Well, a lo- okay. A lot of people know this. A lot of my friends know this, but I haven't talked about it publicly since the book came out. But a lot of what's in there was actually inspired by some real life experiences I had. You yourself are the unnamed masturbator. In a lot of ways, the character is me. This is amazing. The ever-present, silent, and masturbating protagonist of this novel, you think, in some sense, yourself, the author, Christopher Malcolm. Let me tell you about my life growing up. You know, I, I grew up in a small municipality, great parents, loving parents, maybe a little bit hands-off. They never encouraged me to keep going in school or, or do anything like that too much. So when I was 15, I started doing a lot of cocaine. Uh, I got some of the older kids to get it from the dispensary for me. And, you know, my life, my life after that point for the next three or four years was pretty much a blur. But uh, eventually I found it within myself to stop doing cocaine and I started doing a whole bunch of, I don't know if you've ever done cocaine, but it's really hard to masturbate while you're on cocaine. It just, it just shrivels right up. I've, I've never dared to mix masturbation and cocaine, but do go on. So once I started doing other drugs, I found that my dick was really, really hard. And so I was living on my own and getting stuff from the dispensary. But other than that, I spent, it was actually more than a year, almost two years masturbating and doing drugs. What you have written is beyond conventional description, but at the same time, dense scripture. Thank you. Its moral weight is infinite. You have produced a, a, a work whose magnitude is so large and all-encompassing. In, all Your art is a guidepost, a comparative lens through which to approach understanding other art. I just wonder how that sits with you to walk around knowing that you've been bumped up to high intellectualism. It doesn't feel real at all. It's like, whoa, how did I get here, you know? But, I mean, how I got here, it's all there. It's all in the book. But, you know, it's an amazing story. You're amazed by it. I'm amazed by it. The public was amazed by it. I am. And uh, 
The whole time I was reading this mm. tome, my jaw was agape. I really felt like something was working through me, you know, more so than I was producing that it was it was coming through me, that I was inspired by the muses. I can't say enough, Christopher, that what you have created here, it can't be compared to anything. It's just too good. You've written something incredible. Uh, I thank you for your time today. This has been a wonderful interview. And please, please don't write anything else. You've already written all you need to contribute. And anything more will just taint something that is perfect. Well, th please th don't refrain from making too many public statements. Uh, we're all riding high on how great this is. And we can't stand to lose this from our canon in one way or another. It's just thank cannot thanks be. for having me on the show. Uh, thank you for writing the greatest work of all time. So there you have it. Everyone's enormous dreams will come true. And work is for suckers. Now, these are some pretty, uh, you know, interesting ideas for an idealistic alternative world that we could someday live in. I mean, some of them I definitely agree with. Other ones, I'm like, I'm not really sure how it works in practice. But I mean, good on you. You're putting it out there. What, what am I supposed to do, man? Like, what does this have to do with real life? Sure, okay, you described it. there's magical trains that travel faster and ice cream machines next to all the water fountains. That's great. I want to live in that solar punk luxury communist super utopia that you're describing as much as anyone, but it sounds to me like you guys are selling me a false promise without any path to get there. What are you talking about? You being an asshole? Oh, God. Are we? Are, is that what we're doing? Are we? Are we snake oil salesmen? Because we're not really selling any, well, you can donate to the podcast, but shit. Yeah, no, I think, well, it, with true <laughs> utopian thought, I, here's the distinction is, is you, uh, you, you, <laughs> you r r raised my defenses for a second there or some, some introspection. I was like, wait a minute, maybe we are awful. <laughs> maybe this is bad. I think, okay, here's the thing is actually we haven't become awful yet. Oh, okay. The moment we become awful is mm -hmm. where we, when we start promising this is real. We definitely haven't, uh, <clears throat> you know, said we're creating this future. It's happening on uh, this piece of land that Sean and I bought just outside of Vancouver. We need y'all to come move in with us and only listen to us. Break off all contact with your family in the outside world. You have to have and sex with Leader. <laughs> we haven't done that or anything, so... I don't know. We're not a cult leader. Um, <laughs> but I think also that much of what we talked about is is achievable in some way or another. It's it's vague enough that that's true. And it's also true that we, you specifically, but we've already mentioned the caveat that with all of these future possibilities, with becoming a reality, if and when any or all of them do... It's not the end of all problems. It's the beginning of a whole new set of problems. So I don't think we're promising some pie in the sky impossible future. I think we're talking about real potentials that can exist in some form or another. And we are now tasked with describing how to get from here to there, which I think isn't, isn't quite an impossible task, even though it does feel a bit overwhelming. There's no true linear idea of history. History doesn't go from worse to better over time automatically. It's not a magical singular line. 
the direction, the trajectory of history is determined by the trajectory that we put onto it and that we attempt to live out. I'll be the first to tell you that utopia we just described, as great as it is, will likely never exist exactly as we described it. There's going In the process of, of working towards utopia, our ideas of utopia are going to continually change. As the horizon shifts, the horizons of our horizons of our horizons are what we're aiming for. I've described what utopia looks like and feels like to me right now, but in the process of moving towards that utopia, that vision is going to be compromised or is going to evolve or is going to be accentuated or grown in various ways. It's the, I think the thing that's actually like tongue tying me a bit is that I don't know where to start and that you have to kind of pick one aspect and talk about how that might come into reality and deal with the fact that it's interrelated to other aspects later. So like my, the way I see a potential post scarcity uh, technology, full automation happening, the, the steps that can get us from here to there is that, okay, first of all, I think you have to break it down into smaller chunks and say, okay, what's basic? Let's start with, say, food. How do we automate food production and distribution systems in such a way that they can operate at near zero marginal cost, meaning that it costs almost nothing to duplicate another apple after you've set up the infrastructure like a computer costing almost nothing to duplicate an mp3 file save for some minor energy costs how do you set up a food creation infrastructure that costs almost nothing to create an apple there are designs that exist uh, have not been built but exist for something i mentioned already earlier fully automated hydroponic, actually aquaponic uh, food towers. Aquaponic means that fish are involved in the system as a way to keep it as a closed system so that it doesn't need necessarily fertilizer and things as inputs. There's a sort of circular back and forth between the dead plant matter and the fish eating it and pooping it out and the poop being fertilizer. And in theory, the only input these hydroponic food towers would need is energy from solar panels and some maintenance at some times. So this is a discrete singular object that can be built. So what you would want to do initially is create a proof of concept, have a working group of people who are engineers, technical people interested in doing this, potentially investors, potentially some crowdfunding investment, some some social media outreach to make crowdfunding a real possibility. Uh, they attempted some crowdfunding to do this already and it utterly failed. They were looking for $500,000 and I think got a few thousand, but that was a first attempt that was years ago. These ideas of full automation are becoming widespread and the technologies involved are becoming cheaper, easier to get and more advanced. The step-by-step -step process I see for getting to full automation is let's build one fully automated food tower, figure out what's wrong with it, how to make it better, how it works. We build a second one, um, third one, a fourth one. Once it becomes recognized how, how feasible this is and how possible, there's a breaking point where people start building them all over the world. The capital investment becomes a no-brainer because it's obvious. And once we have fully automated food production, we can remove food, in a sense, from the 
economic system as it currently exists, the need to exchange money for food because we have implemented this fully automated system. Not saying that the whole world will use fully automated food towers. There might be many different kinds of solutions for food production. This is just one idea and it's an example. It's an easy, discrete example, but you start with what exists and build it, build new potentials, build them out to eclipse systems. Fully automated factories are already a thing. So food production is actually a hard one compared to, say, a factory that produces clothing for everyone. Like we could build a fully automated factory that produces clothing for everyone right now with very little new kinds of engineering. It's it's trivial as far as I understand the state of automation. These are kinds of projects that can be undertaken. They are expensive, but they're not they're not impossibly expensive. It's not impossible to round up a few million dollars and to try something like this. Piece by piece, we can build the foundation of an automated society right now. And we can all, all that it takes is some amount of collective will and capital. Uh, which is just another way of saying collective will because you get enough people together, you can raise the kind of money that's necessary to slowly begin to provide more and more goods, services, etc. in an automated fashion. This is a great example of the type of revolutionary logic we need to fully engage in, in pragmatic utopian practice. To do a, just a minor side note, there's there's more than one theory of revolution, and and one of the most prominent theories of revolution that I run into is a a, a puncture theory of revolution. That there's a a sudden moment where either there's an insurrection or, or things just very very suddenly change, um, and so without condemning that as impossible or or anything like that, I think that it's a bad idea to just wait and hope that suddenly people are going to rise up against the government or there's going to be some sort of horrible disaster that forces us to work together or we're going to have to fight aliens so we'll unify against them or whatever whatever other you know puncture theory of revolution might exist the alternative theory of revolution that i would endorse is a more uh, evolutionary experimental and prefigurative idea of revolution which I feel like your example of the starting to build food towers, building political will and, and getting resources together to build self-sustaining food towers in the present is, is a way of starting the transition in material terms to this utopia that we hope to envision. Basically, prefigurative politics is the philosophical political perspective that you should be the change you wish to see in the world reading a bit about this. I didn't know anything much about it before, but during the Spanish Civil War, when there was a period of anarcho-syndicalism in Spain, uh, what they did, rather than try to create a new state in the vacuum that existed, was just start existing as a different kind of society, using their existing unions as the organizational structure for their society. And living out their ideal right then and there in the future. There was no transitional state involved. They just started doing it. It was exactly that prefigurative politics. They were eventually 
crushed by uh, Stalinist opposition because they, uh, at least in Bookchin's analysis, because they refused to accept the necessity of holding power. That aside, that initial aspect of what they were doing was prefigurative. It was the creation of the new society within the shell of the old. On a large scale, if I'm if I'm the leader of the worldwide decentralized nonviolent revolution towards world peace, I'm proposing a multi pronged uh, a multi pronged strategy that acknowledges the realities of power, but also seeks to to live to live alternatives in reality. So, with the example of your food tower, if if, if we wanted to build a food tower like that, okay, we're going to need the monetary resources, um, and we're also going to have to secure a political allowance of it because as long as we live under a political system of rule and control there are boundaries on what can be built and what can't be built in various places just on an overall structural level i'd like to give some ideas of what we can do individually as as people right now also but on a structural level i think it's maybe important to have a a big vision of of where it heads so structurally assuming that we've got a mass movement we've got a lot of people on our side so you need to have grassroots attempts at prefigurative politics. So for example, community assemblies, um, democratizing workplaces, other experiments in prefigurative direct democracy, this type of stuff. So there's a grassroots level of everyday activists. There is also the institutional level, which is a combination between entryism, so trying to get into municipal government, provincial government, federal government, etc., to have our ideological claims, our ideological hopes be embedded in the system enough that we can at least secure ourselves enough space to exist. Power structures, when challenged, tend to crack down on those who oppose them. It is essential that we have at least our foot in the door of these levels of government where we can prevent the crackdown of ourselves. But I think a really crucial part of this revolution, this transition, this this new world that we're going to co-create together is uh, checking not just one's privilege, but checking one's contingency. Not just how do I benefit from power dynamics in society, but checking where do I come from? Why do I think the things I do? What, what does it mean to be born at this time in history than a different time in history? What, what does it mean to have the job I do? What does it mean to have the aspirations and all these different things that I do? Why do I believe what I believe and where did it come from? That is contingency. Instead of saying, oh, it sucks that I'm a police officer, I've got this double double thought of like, I think this system needs to change, but I'm also a cop. But just in theory, what we want is for people, no matter their position in society, to be able to advocate for elements of the transition from where they are. So it's not that we need to join the police department and change it from within, but we need to be open to the idea that police officers might agree with us and give them the tools they need to change the police from within. There are already people within these institutions who have good intentions and are trying to change them from within and are open to ideas from people from without. And it would be a wasted opportunity and it would be futile to not reach out to them, to not attempt to simultaneously, while putting pressure on these institutions from the outside, to also uh, encourage those within those institutions who have good intentions, which most people do because most people aren't evil, expanding their perceptions of the possible, expanding their idea and their vision of what a reformed version 
of their institution might look like. And I, yeah, I think that's, that's really important. And that is something you can do right now. Try to influence these individuals who are within these institutions, like creating propaganda, creating one-to-one conversations even, but writing things directed at those people or either directly or tangentially and attempting to influence power and not even meaning the most powerful people in the world, but your local policeman who is on the low end of the totem pole and might have some very, very minor influence on how his police department is working. It's not futile to try and influence those people's patterns of thought. So yeah, it's something that we can put into practice right away as individuals is trying to excise the ideas from us that that there's no point in trying to reach certain people, trying to excise the idea that uh, others are lost causes, trying to excise the idea of a, a exclusivist revolution. Now, because when you're talking about the reform of society, you're talking about something that involves everyone in it. Um, and as, as, as much as it hurts to know on some level, there's never going to be a time where everything that I agree with is universally thought by everyone in society. But yet, I hope to ex- exercise change that affects all of them nonetheless. So I think it's important that we, that we, we, have, the people, uh, we have the people behind us. Another, another thing that you can, I don't know if you can do this right now, immediately begin this tomorrow. Well, you can't, you can begin the process of potentially starting this tomorrow, but I don't think you can just have it tomorrow, which is something you already mentioned, which is community assemblies. One of the reasons I like Bookchin's libertarian municipalism so much is that it is both means and end. The goal is to have these community assemblies being the ultimate house of power in those particular communities, but it is also a way in which to organize politically and to attempt some sets of prefigurative politics right now in the moment, restore some sense of actual community with the people who live around you. Like it would be really interesting for me if there were, I live in an area of Vancouver called Mount Pleasant, if there were Mount Pleasant uh, community assemblies, town halls to go and visit, even if they had no formal institutional power, they, if we were participating in democratic decision-making about what we would like to happen within our own neighborhood, policies we would like to see enacted within our own neighborhood. If there was some substantial amount of participation from the community, that's that's in and of itself a powerful thing. It's a small thing. It's just one small community within Vancouver. But the idea that groups of people within this community are getting together and deciding on what they want in a truly democratic fashion is a very intuitively appealing narrative. And just by doing that, you are challenging, in a sense, the authority of the state. I think, yeah, like you've said, the dual power aspect is necessary there. It'd be good to have some people on the Vancouver City Council on our side who would, rather than trying to squash us would want to work with us or or that we could work with them or who consider it their job to represent yeah to to represent these these meetings and be someone who 
who puts their ideas into practice, who believes in democracy and says, this is, this is what these citizens of this community want. And yes, I represent a larger community of communities of Vancouver, but um, part of that is representing this, the citizens council of Mount Pleasant. And, you know, hopefully there would be more citizens councils of other areas, but this is something that is not easy. And like, honestly, I have no fucking idea how to start this and like, get people to participate in it. I'm, I've never organized anything like that and I don't know how to do it, but I know that it is a million zillion percent more possible, more doable. It's something I could imagine myself if I worked really hard at it, potentially achieving much more possible than armed revolution across Canada to implement you know, a libertarian municipalist society immediately, like destroying the federal government and issuing the edict that now all communities will have assemblies. And like, like that's big and heavy and hard and insane. This is pretty big, pretty hard, but, but doable. It's possible. It's potential. Like working with members of your own community to start such a community assembly is firmly, firmly within the realm of the possible. And it's experimental. And I think the important thing about experimentalism, which is the difference between a community trying it, we see if it works, or we build a food tower, we see if it works. Um, and then we use that to develop what further food towers or further assemblies will look like. There's a room for evolutionary space. There's a room for plurality, attempts at different uh, at different ways of organizing. But when you fail, because not not if you fail, but when you fail, when these things fail, when you build a food tower that doesn't end up working, you failed small enough that it's okay yeah and it's instructive to others whereas yeah if you've taken over the country if we did a military coup of canada right now and forcefully switch to our utopian system which i really like describing it but if i imagine a military coup forcefully switching to that system that we just described sounds like a it just immediately is reframed as dystopia yes yeah, <laughs> nightmare <laughs> You start by running candidates to get onto council, but to not take over. Even within the city politics, you've got a mixture between the old managerial type politicians and the new representative type politicians. And this is because we don't want to take over something and then have it crash. What we need to do is edge into it. The experience of actually running a city and being a mayor and etc. It's really, really, really complicated. It's something that the first step is not to take over entirely. You need to make me king today. <laughs> that's, the, that's the answer, everyone. Episode over. Aaron's king. It's all solved. Well, if if I mean, even if everyone, I part of me wants to be like, yeah, I know Aaron. He'd be good for the job. But <laughs> when I think about all those people with like rifles, with your face on their shirt, mm, being yeah, like, we're like about it. to take over for Aaron. I'm just so not in it anymore. Well, I want to be an elected king. The whole world elects me king. <laughs> okay. We have got some breaking news, a confirmation bias news, breaking news alert here, folks. We are told that Aaron's petition to the rich and powerful to make him king of the world has been accepted. That is right. I'm being told that Aaron Moritz has been given a universal mandate to take over the matters and business of Earth to fix things and move us towards a more glorious future. Critics are saying that all of the presidents and business leaders cannot get together and have a private vote on who the king of the world is. Others are saying this is a welcome change of pace in a stagnating economy. We have the president-elect 
Aaron Moritz, here in the studio today with us. Aaron, how does it feel to be incumbent president of the world? I'm good. I'm good. I uh, the, the news came to me yesterday and, you know, I was petitioning for it, but it was a bit of a shock uh, to to have everyone say yes. And I've been um, getting a lot of calls all day. I've been being briefed on a lot of the issues facing the planet right now. And so, you know, I'm feeling I'm feel I'm feeling like there's a lot, a lot, a lot going on. What do you see as your mandate? What's your highest priority? How are you going to clean up this mess? As anyone who followed my campaign knows, my mandate was to create absolute utopia across the planet, get everyone enough food, enough water, enough shelter, free education, free access to information, free access to health care. That's my mandate. Um, and right now... The first thing I have to do is focus on food. I'm going to talk to all the top food producers around the world and and people who are who who know about food distribution and going to I'm going to try and get that there there's a there's been a lot of complications in how to actually get that done that I wasn't aware of when I was running. I'm looking into it. That that's that's I'm looking into it. Some reports are saying that you were surprised by the scope of duties that you had taken on in becoming the president of the world. A better way to think about it is that I'm just one man, you know, and I know the direction that I want us all to go in. And people seem to agree that it's a good direction. I'm going to do whatever... I can, you know, I'm only one man, can only do so much. I'm going to do whatever I can to use the power that's been granted to me to get get that stuff done. When I was running about all the power that I was going to have, and I kind of thought I could just use that power to give everyone food, but there's there's a lot of details. So I wasn't surprised about the scope of the responsibilities, but I was maybe a little bit surprised at how many details there were. Do you have any comment on the recently unearthed quote from you? And this is from 2017. All of the police can suck on my dick. Um, this is a quote from you. All of the police can suck on my dill hole. I'm going to do drugs all day and masturbate because I'm an adult. And you went on to say, it's my choice and this is my feminism. You know, that was just a shit posting, you know? I don't know if you've ever been on the internet, but people shit post and things get shit posted. You know, if I was to drag up every shit post you ever made, it would uh, it would look pretty bad for you too. So, you know, it's it's just this politically correct nonsense about, you know, trying to police what people say and, you know, obviously all the police can't suck on my dill hole. That's physically impossible so it's just it was a joke and people are making far too much of it i don't i'm not against feminism i was just saying that was my feminism which is obviously not a kind of feminism it's a joke making me explain the joke now and it's not so funny anymore and for all of you sjw's out there who think that what i said was terrible and inappropriate well 
I'm the president now. Okay. So freedom of speech means you stop whining about what I said. Okay. This has been the king of the world sitting here with me today. It has been a pleasure to have you here, Mr. Aaron Moritz. Any last words for your constituents around the world from here to Timbuktu and back? Yeah, if anyone has any uh, any ideas about how to get that stuff done that I said I was going to get done, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a humble man. I'm open. I'm listening. So send it to my staff. You know, it's on the world government website. There's a there's a contact form there. Send us a message. We want to hear from you. After the break, the beauty pageants have begun that will determine the queen of the world. Stay tuned. There are ways that we can bring uh, the utopian ideal and the and the, the the conversation, the thought processes that help us transition from one mode of society into the next. We can bring that into our day to day life, no matter who we are, and, and understanding our context and and what, for example, what resources we have access to. How much time do we have? How much money do we have? Which contacts do we have in the world? Do we know anyone who's, who's influential? If, if you regularly, for some reason or another, regularly talk to Seth MacFarlane, who created Family Guy. Oh, I regularly talk to my uncle who runs this company or whatever. The opportunities that we're given in our life, the people that we meet, the paths we cross things like this, we can be ready to accelerate the revolution in those moments. I can only imagine what your situation is that comes to mind of how, in what context you can accelerate revolution. But I think we're all given these choices. There's uh, something I heard uh, Zizek say also in talking about utopia that I really liked, which was that like, okay, yes, these ideas of a perfect society that we have and compare to and whatever, yes, that's that's one kind of utopia, sure. But there's a different way that that sort of presents itself in our lives, and that is through acts, utopian acts. These are acts that are meant to expand the realm of the possible, but it, it's the same thing that you're talking about. This This is purpose of utopia or, or one of the, the the applications of utopia is when these opportunities come up in your life, when you see a way in which you can change how people are thinking into something that points them in that direction, where you take an action based on you know some amount of faith or not but but on based on the premise that change is possible and that it's worth it and that these goals are possible and worth it and seeing the larger whole within the microcosm of this action you're taking of of talking to your uncle who's friends with Seth MacFarlane and maybe somehow this spirals into a new family guy-esque cartoon show that talks about a post-scarcity society in some way. Like anything that gets these ideas out there can ultimately be beneficial. And like, no matter what the form they take, even if it was just making fun of it, but 
the principle of it, the principle of being on the lookout for opportunities to enact utopia, to to make a utopian stand, a step to to attempt to increase the realms of the possible. Like I think that's the the best advice that I can offer any of you out there. We've offered some other advice. Sean has had lots of amazing advice. Um, <laughs> oh, stop. <laughs> but you know your life, you know your situation, your contingencies, and just be open to the fact, the fact that things will come up in your life where you have an opportunity to make a change, even if it's incredibly small uh, in how the world works or in how someone in the world thinks. And these things can always have effects that are far broader reaching than they might initially seem. So in some sense, you, you don't know what you need to do, but you will know what you need to do when you see it, if you're on the lookout for it. And if you want to, if you want to do something and you feel like you don't know what to do, here is some uh, basic first steps um, that you can take. Attempt with some friends to make a political book reading group of some kind. Just regularly meet, talk about what you're reading, share photocopies with each other, and talk about political action. Get your friends together who are interested in changing the system. Uh, in one way or another, and and just give it a shot as a means of it's a social time, but it's also a political time, and it's it's not about very very serious organizing, but it's about building political spheres, experience in political dialogue and groups off of the internet, which can often be a toxic and horrible place that drains everyone's will to participate. If you aren't very social, you're anxious, you don't have a lot of friends that you could do this type of thing with, or you're afraid to try to organize with strangers in that way, that's totally understandable. Something that you could do in that contingent circumstance is utilize your internet capability to do things like spamming links to our podcast places, spamming links to this podcast, putting Buckminster Fuller quotes places, putting Murray Bookchin quotes places, you know, whatever speaks to you in in a utopian sense. Think of the internet as the poster board at the laundromat and you're putting up everywhere you go, you're putting up posters to try to attract people to come to your um, ideological event, which is a transition from one society into the next. (laughs) And if you can't do either of these things for some reason, um, although can't imagine that applies to most people. Something that you can do to help the revolution is financially support our podcast um, (laughs) or use the contact form on our website to give us feedback. Um, It's not so good. I have to be honest, it's more good for me and Aaron than like the world as a whole. To financially support our podcast? Yeah, like it's not... I mean, like in that it helps us feel motivated to do this podcast and this podcast in some small way is helping the world. Like there's... Yeah, uh, and we we get positive feedback like that, like, oh, you helped me change my mind on this, yeah. or you made me more optimistic. If you want to support what we've been doing here, you can do that. Yeah, so thanks for listening. I thought maybe I'd end on this this quote that was uh that was all right. Sure. <laughs> this all right quote. Uh this quote's from Eduardo Galliano. Utopia lies at the horizon. When I draw nearer by two steps, it retreats two steps. If I proceed 10 steps forward, it swiftly slips 10 steps ahead. No matter how far I go, I can never reach it. 
What then is the purpose of utopia? It is to cause us to advance. It is to cause us to advance. <laughs> you like that uh, stank I put on the end of yeah, that quote? Yeah, it's good. <laughs> you are Uh, okay, well, why don't you just um, show me that story that you've been writing? Uh, uh, can you tell yeah. man? Yeah, you, you, you want to read it? Man? You want me to read it to you? I would love that. Could you share it with me? Okay, so let me go get it. Okay, okay. Um, there once was a boy named Bill. That and one cool. day, Bill was playing with trucks in his backyard sandbox. And he saw... A horse walking down the street. That is the cool. little boy asked the horse if he could ride the horse because the little boy wanted to go to the mall. Creative story. Uh, just can, uh, can I give you one note? What if the horse was from a, something like a, a horse co-op, all run by well, the farmers? He's, he's a magic like horse because he can. He listens to the boy when he talks. So. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, no, yeah, I mean, uh, lame dad stuff. Sorry, I'm just being lame. Your dad's a loser, okay? Sorry, just go on. Does he need to go to the mall, though? I mean, that's a place, as a consumerist, um, could go to something. Uh, no, your dad, uh, your dad's being a loser again, sorry. And then the toy store owner said, Bill, how would you like to be the prince of the mall? Bill was stopped crying right away and he was so happy because being the prince of the mall means he can get anything he wants for free well you know i think that's a it's a cute story it's a cute story that you've written there it's honestly it's got pretty much synonymous values with mine you know i'm all about that prince of the mall yeah i want everyone to be the prince of the mall you know well no it's you can't be the prince if everyone else is the prince but then what if two people want the same toy? The prince gets it. But if they're both the prince, you see how this doesn't work? Next time on Seriously Wrong. The greater the bureaucratization of public life, the greater will be the attraction of violence. In a fully developed bureaucracy, there is nobody left with whom one can argue, to whom one can present grievances, on whom the pressures of power could be exerted. Bureaucracy is the form of government in which everyone is deprived of political freedom, of the power to act, for the rule by nobody is not no rule, and where all are equally powerless, we have tyranny without a tyrant.